If you have a Bible, turn there with me to Galatians. Galatians chapter 1, we'll be wrapping up that chapter today. Galatians chapter 1. You get through the Gospels, the Acts, Romans, Corinthians, Galatians. First and Second Corinthians, Galatians. There are Bibles in the back if you need one. If you don't have one, it is yours. Uh, just to give us a quick update um, the epistle, this little important, very important letter or epistle was written about 20 years or so after the brutal death and resurrection of Jesus Christ the Lord and probably was somewhere in the ballpark about maybe the 15th year of Paul's life as a believer. It was written shortly after uh, uh, his first missionary journey, around 48 or 49 A.D. Um, you can read Acts chapter 13 and Acts chapter 14 and see the background to the city of Galatia and how God was calling people and the gospel was preached and people were becoming Christians, both Jews and Gentiles, non-Jews were coming to faith in Jesus Christ. You know, the scripture teaches us that one plants, one plants the seed, the gospel, while others supply water, but it is God who causes the growth, 1 Corinthians uh, 3. And this letter that Paul wrote, this letter to the Galatian churches, plural, Uh, was written primarily to contend for the true gospel. The true gospel was being distorted and twisted by people historically known as the Judaizers Judaizers who wanted Christians to comply with the law of Moses in order to be saved, in order to be rescued, in order to be redeemed. Now you may be here this morning and say, what does it really mean to be saved? You know, people talk about being saved. Being saved or salvation, it means that a person has been rescued, has been saved from the penalty of their sins that has been owed to God by the penalty bearer whose name is Jesus. He is the one who died a substitutionary atonement for our sins, for sinners like you and me. We love John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, but whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting or eternal life but the next verse says for God did not send his son into the world to condemn it but in order that the world might be saved through him whoever believes in him is not condemned but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the son of the uh, name of the son of God he writes to John three thirty six: whoever believes in his son has eternal life whoever does not obey the son shall not see life But the wrath of God remains on him. So being saved, being delivered, being redeemed from the wrath of God is a really big deal. And how do sinners get saved? How do sinners get rescued? How does one go from sinful rebellion toward God deserving hell and damnation to life with God, rescued from our sins? The gospel. That's why it's absolutely vital and essential that we understand the gospel and respond to the true gospel. That's what Galatians is all about. You see, Paul's in his first missionary journey. He preached the gospel, uh, how you and I are, are sinners and we are justified by faith. We are made right with God, saved, made right, justified, vindicated in the cosmic courtroom of God by faith alone. Through the person of Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, and the work of Jesus Christ, his atonement on the cross. That is what justifies a person. You and I both know, if you're not sure, just ask the person with you, that you're a sinner. That you've rebelled against them and against God, ultimately. 
Paul says we are saved, we are rescued by faith in Christ. And there were some Judaizers who said that in order to be justified, in order to be saved, in order to be rescued and redeemed, you could believe on the Lord Jesus, but you got to add good works. You got to add the works of the law to your faith in order to be rescued, redeemed, saved, justified. And one of their tactics in this false gospel was to discredit, to discredit the apostolic calling and commission and therefore the message of Paul. In the first two chapters, we're going to get, look into this more in a couple of weeks. In the first two chapters of Galatians, Paul is defending his apostolic call. He's defending his commission, his authority, and his message by telling the church that he got his, this calling, this apostolic authority, not, look at verse 1, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. Notice one preposition for Jesus Christ and God the Father. They were not separate in his mind. Right here, you have even the the imprint of the deity of Christ. He then prays, verse 3, for grace and mercy should come to them. And then after giving a succinct gospel explanation, including the resurrection from the grave, verse 4, Jesus' voluntary substitutionary death for our sins and the willing for the will and glory of God, he launches, we saw this last week, into this scathing attack against these false gospel teachers. He was absolutely astonished, verse 8, that these Galatian churches were so quick to desert, switch teams, his great merited favor, call them out of darkness to himself. He's warning them about these false teachers who are troubling and, and distorting the true gospel. He gets so fired up, verse 8 and 9, he tells them not once but twice. If someone comes and says you have to be saved by believing on the Lord Jesus and something else, let him be anathema, accursed, damned, perish in hell. Verse 8 and verse 9. Strong language. And lastly, week we ended up in verses 11 and 12 where Paul is transitioning into this autobiographical statement by saying that his gospel is not man's invention look at verse 11 and 12 it was not man's invention Uh, uh, no one taught him the true gospel he received it how directly through the revelation see that verse 12 directly through the revelation of Jesus Christ now I didn't mention this last week I just want to mention this quickly Revelation is, is why we talked about last week. It's the disclosure, this unveiling. The truth of the gospel was disclosed and unveiled to the Apostle Paul by Jesus Christ himself. And the New Testament teaches us that God's ultimate disclosure of himself is Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1, long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. We've got the Bible. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. That's who Jesus is. John 1.18, John says, No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He, Jesus, has made him known. Made him known. The original language is to exegete, to explain, to unfold. Uh, Jesus actually is exegeting the very nature of God to the world. It is that Jesus. It is that Jesus who gave Paul his apostolic authority. It is that Jesus who gave him the gospel message 
that we are justified by faith alone in Christ alone, in which Paul made very clear at the opening of this book, and now he is demonstrating it in three movements, okay? Three movements. And we'll look at that in a minute, but let's read together God's holy word. Galatians chapter 1, verse 13. Hear the word of the Lord. Galatians chapter 1, verse 13. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. This is the Apostle Paul writing this. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who has set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the region of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in persons to the church of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. May God made a blessing to the reading of his inerrant infallible, authoritative word. Three simple movements. The predisposition of Paul, the predestination of God, and the proclamation of the gospel. Number one. Look at verse 13. You heard in my former life, in Judaism, not only was I born a Jew, he's saying, but my religious pedigree is raised in the law and in traditions of man. How I persecuted the church of God violently, and I tried to destroy it. I was advancing beyond many of my own age. So zealous was I, extremely zealous, for the traditions of my father. The apostle Paul's name before his conversion was Saul. Saul was not just a hater of Christians. Saul was a terrorist who tried to kill them and stamp them out by persecuting, what does he say here, the church of God violently, trying to destroy it. Notice Paul in verse 2 mentions the churches of Galatia. In chapter uh, 1, verse 2, he talks about the plurality, multiple local expressions of God's body, the community of God's people that were in Galatia, but not here. This is singular. He's talking about the church of God, the the universal body of Christ, followers of Jesus Christ from different churches that he was persecuting. He says, the church of God. He was violently wreaking havoc. The word signifies to extinguish, to pull down, to destroy, to annihilate the church. It was used of sacking cities. Unfortunately for Paul, he didn't know at this point What Jesus said, that I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Before coming to faith, if you go open your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 9, we see this Saul who became Paul was breathing threats against the disciples of the Lord. And he went to the high priest asking for letters. He's in Jerusalem. 
to the synagogues at Damascus, which is north of Jerusalem. So, as he's going there, he would find any belonging to the way. That was the Christian believers. I am the way, the truth, and the life. They were called the way early on. If I found anyone belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them what? Bound back to Jerusalem. You know what I find interesting? I mentioned this a few weeks ago. The word apostle is not something Jesus made up. The word apostle sent one was someone who was sent under the authority and commission with their authority to go on their behalf like an ambassador. What's so interesting here is here is Paul sent by the powerful Sanhedrin. They were the power brokers of Israel in Jerusalem made up of the high priest and 70 men. He was sent by them, sort of like an apostle, to carry out this plot. But the authority that they've given him to take out Christians. In Acts chapter 22, Paul rehearses this this former life as well. He does it in chapter 9, chapter 22, and chapter 26. In chapter 2, he's being bound. He is bound in chains. He's in Jerusalem. He wants to speak to the people of Jerusalem. And they say, go ahead, talk to them. And he says in chapter 22, I was a Jew. I was born in Tarsus and Sicilia. I was brought up in the city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel. Very important. He was the grandson of a rabbi by the name of Hillel, who's a founder of one of the Pharisaic schools. Very powerful, very well-known Pharisee. He's a, a, a student of this man. He says, I was at his feet, according to the strict manner of the law of the fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you this day know, I persecuted the way to death. I bound them. I delivered them to prisons. I journeyed toward Damascus to take those who were there, who were Christians, and bring them in bound and bind them in chains, really, to Jerusalem and punish them. Acts chapter 26, he's rehearsing the story again. Now, you read chapter 9, you read chapter 22, you read chapter 26, and they're slightly different stories. Just like when you tell a story, it's never the same. Your stories, though, the fish gets bigger and bigger and bigger. (laughs) Paul's story is you take them three and you put them together and you got the full account. They're all true. And in chapter 26, he's talking to Agrippa, and he says this. I not only locked up Christians, many saints in prison, I received authority to do that. They were put to death, and when they were, I voted against them. I punished them in the synagogues. I tried to make them blaspheme, and in a raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Paul is rehearsing this predisposition to the gospel. Why? Paul is making it clear that he was a man of great moral fortitude. He had done many good religious deeds, so he thought. He spent years seeking to live according to the Jewish laws, according to the Jewish traditions, the way of life as a Pharisee as he was. He was advancing in Judaism above all the people his own age probably. He was zealous for moral righteousness. If there is anyone who understood the futile attempts to try to be justified by faith, accepted by God, excuse me, by works, 
If there's anyone who understood a futile attempt to be accepted by God through your own effort, through your own works, it was the former legalist named Saul of Tarsus. We're going to get into exactly the teaching of this adding law to grace, but he's building a defense here to the church against these false teaching by revealing his former life of complete failure to receive by his own effort any justification at all. He's saying, listen, I can compare myself with the best and the holiest of those who are running around Galatia teaching you that you have to add works of the law to faith. If anyone had reason to glory in righteousness obtained by the law, it is I. (laughs) Be on guard, Galatia church. Listen to the letter I'm writing you. I was that guy. And Paul's main point is I've I've done that. I know that. I've already tried that. His, His main point is to say, look, there is nothing in, 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 in my religious background, there's nothing in my pre-conversion life that would any way, shape, or form prepare me for this positive response to the gospel. My, my predisposition was quite contrary. She was shaped by the, the law and by Judaism and by righteousness. Now, I think that the Galatian churches, excuse me, yeah, the Galatian churches probably knew some of this already when Paul preached the gospel to them. But he's reminding them, saying, listen, you cannot be accepted by God. You cannot be forgiven, and you cannot be justified by the works of the law. I'm the most zealous guy and dedicated guy that you ever knew. I was so zealous for the law that I broke the law by doing what I did. You know, legalism may not bring you to the place of murder, I hope. (laughs) But legalism will bring you to the place of pride. To the church of Philippi, this is what he said about his former life. Listen to this. Paul is telling the Philippian church, As to zeal of the law, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. You can almost hear him. Blameless. I'm blameless. Not you, I am. Self-righteous people are super aware of your sins, just not very aware of their own. They're so quick to blame the problems on others and often say to each other, if they would just do as I do and live as I do, their life would be so much better. And when no one wants to hang out with a legalist, they say, I'm too pure for them, when really the truth is legalists are harsh and judgmental and no one likes to hang out with legalists. And Paul is saying, that's who I was. That's who I used to be, but that's not who I am today. That was my former life. So let's ask this question. Can anyone really say, looking at Paul's former life, can anyone really say, you're included in this, I'm included in this? Can anyone really say, God can't love me? God can't rescue me. God can't redeem and justify me. God can't do that. I have gone too far. Have you ever invited someone to church? Hey, why don't you come to church with me? And they say, man, if I walk into that building, the roof's going to fall in. And if you say right now, no one's ever said that to me, it's because you're not hanging out with sinners. Go hang out with some sinners and ask them to come to church. They'll tell you that. 
Paul's a persecutor, murder of Christian. He was not only saved by Christ, but also called to be a preacher. Thirteen books of the Bible, leader of the faith. His testimony is a powerful witness of the truth in the heart of Christianity. Is the gospel of grace. Grace is free, unmerited favor of God, working powerfully to change the heart, to change the mind, to change lives. There's no clear example of this in the Apostle Paul. That salvation is by grace alone, not through one's moral record. Religious performance is by grace. Though Paul's sins were very deep, he's invited in. Dr. Tim Keller writes this. This is great. Keller writes this. No one is so good that they don't need the grace of the gospel, nor so bad that they can't receive the grace of the gospel. Paul was deeply religious, but he needed the gospel. Paul was deeply flawed, yet he could be reached with the gospel, end quote. If you're here and you don't need the gospel, pride is in your way. Pride is in your way. And humanly speaking, it will keep you from coming to Christ. When we put all our confidence in our pedigree, in our background, in our status, in our achievements, in our influence, in our money, whatever you're putting your, 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 your confidence in, you will think, why would I need Christ? But when you see the utter need of forgiveness, when you recognize that a holy God cannot be embraced we can we cannot run to this holy god because we are sinners and god is holy and just when you really understand your need for grace and for forgiveness the words but when god is beautiful look at verse 15 the predestination of god but when god or but when he's talking about god verse 15 first galatians 1 15 but when god had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace. Stop right there. Notice, notice quickly, verse 13 and 14, where the subjects of the verbs are about Paul himself. Look what it says. I persecuted the church. I tried to des- destroy it. I advanced in Judaism. So extremely jealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Now look, verse 15 and 16. He says, it was God who set me apart. It was God who called me by his grace. It was God who revealed, uh, who was pleased to reveal his son in me. And when did this happen? When did God set Paul apart? Before he was born. Before he was born. Did Paul make a real decision on the road to Damascus? I hear people saying it now. Did he truly repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? Yes. But was his decision, the decisive decision to make him a Christian? No. His real life changing decision came as a result of God's calling of Paul before he was born. Before his mother conceived him. On a side note, aren't you glad he wasn't aborted and murdered in the womb? This calling, this setting apart is what the Bible calls predestination. Don't freak out of that word. It's a biblical word. Love it. The word predestinate, predestinate or predestination means to mark out beforehand. 
to mark out beforehand. It emphasized that God has foreordained whatever comes to pass. And family, it cannot mean that God looked down the hall of time and saw Paul, saw that was going to happen to him, that he was going to get knocked off his horse, and that he was going to act upon what Saul has done. If God were going to look down the hall of time and see us, what the Bible says, dead in our sins, children of wrath, Ephesians 2, unable to respond, and he looks down the hall of time, but what is he going to see? He's going to see all of us with our finger in his face. That's what he's going to see. God can't learn anything. He's omniscient. Predestination is far more than just a factual occurrence. It is a declaration of love. I want you to see that this morning. God foreknew us in that he loved us. He put a seal, a hand, and love upon us before time began. You're like, really? Where'd you get that from? Ephesians 1. He chose us in him before the foundations of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to our great deeds and wonderful actions. No, according to the purpose of his will. Here God in the act of predestination chose Paul to salvation and submission before he was born. You can say, well, I can't figure all that out. Welcome to the club. I simply, I simply accept the fact that I'm not God. He's at work and it's a work of grace. Verse 15b, set me apart before I was born and called me by his grace. Paul writes to young Timothy in 2 Timothy, reminding Timothy of salvation. Chapter 1, verse 9. He tells Timothy how God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Now, we're not talking about a general call. We're not talking about a broad sweeping call. We're talking about a call of God that renews and regenerates the heart. It is the call that creates life. In fact, the word holy in 2 Timothy 1 means separate, set apart, hagios, where we get the word sanctification. And when, when, when the holy calling is used of God's, for God's people, we've been set apart from sin, set apart to God. Paul was not only set apart before his birth, but according to Galatians and 2 Timothy, called by his grace unto salvation for a purpose. For a purpose. And it was done by grace and grace alone. And that call prompted, not by our deeds, not by his deeds, not by his good works, but by the pleasure of God. And some people, you hear this, well, if God predestined, then we're just robots. No, you're not. I know I'm not. Okay? The Bible is very clear that we are to make real choices and respond to the gospel. We are responsible for the call of the gospel. And this call of God that awakens the heart doesn't violate our will. It liberates it. It sets us free to respond to the call. When that, came, when that day came, when you and I responded and made a real choice, I'm going to follow Jesus, I'm going to repent of my sin and believe on him. That's not part of the work of salvation. It's the result of salvation before time began. Although I was not a murderer, I certainly was running in the opposite direction. Didn't want to hear anything about God to anyone. If I left to myself, I'm doomed. 
If left to yourself, you're doomed. And what's so amazing about, think about this, that Paul's call on his life was before, was by grace, was before he was born, that God, until that moment, until that moment, God's call that awakened Paul, until that moment, God actively allowed and permitted Paul to persecute the church violently, knowing that a certain day he was calling him out of that. Can you imagine, I thought about this, can you imagine being in Jerusalem and you hear about this and Paul comes to faith on a Tuesday? Meanwhile, your family's dragged out of the church and persecuted, possibly murdered on Sunday? Like, Lord, if you called him out from birth before he was born, couldn't you call him when he was like nine? The late Dr. Sproul tells a story about a college professor who hated Christians, persecuted Christians. And she would say to him, why would you believe in a God who made only one way to be saved, only available one way through Jesus Christ? R.C. Sproul said to his professor, I'm not surprised that God made only one way. I'm much more surprised that he even made a way. Instead of on focusing on God's choosing, who he chooses, who he's known for, stand in awe that he's offering any of us the grace of Christ. None of us deserve salvation. God allowed Paul and you and I to stick our finger in his face to live as we wanted to live for as long as we lived and patiently waited until that day he called us. Not according to anything we've done, but according to his mercy, according to his grace, according to the love that he has for you and I. A gift we do not deserve. Paul was utterly undeserved. Paul was fighting against God. Paul was fighting against Christ. Paul was fighting against God's people. He neither deserved mercy nor asked for it, but yet mercy found him. Grace called him. Sometimes you're talking about, I found Christ. That's not accurate. Right? The truth is, God finds us. That's true for Paul, that's true for you, and that's true for the Galatian church, chapter 4, verse 9. Paul writes to them, but now that you have come to know God, well, oop, oop, let me say this, or rather to be known by God, chapter 4, verse 9. God set his loving grace on Paul, not because he was worthy of it, but simply because God took delight, notice what it says, and pleasure in doing so, verse 16. He was pleased to reveal his son. That's how God works. What did, what did God say to Moses? Deuteronomy 7. The Lord did not set his affection on you as a people and chose you because you were more numerous than the other people. You were the fewest of all people, but it was because the Lord loved you. Mm. God's love is not because we're serviceable to him. He loves us simply because he loves us. I know that's very theological, but it is. He loves us because he loves us. That's the only kind of love that we can actually be secure in, right? That's the only kind of love that we can't possibly lose. I love you because I love you. That's what grace says. And you say, well, you have no idea what I've done. I don't. But this I know you're here this morning. And God hasn't gotten rid of you yet. And God's calling you to his grace. Paul's call and conversion have their explanation in the good pleasure of God. You ever, ever asked that question? What pleases God? 
What is it that emotionally pleases the creator of the universe? Revealing his son to Paul, to you, and to me. If you have your Bibles, open to chapter 26 of Acts. I just, well, if you don't have it, that's okay. I'm going to read it to you anyway. He revealed his son. He was pleased to reveal his son to me. Acts chapter 26, verse 13. I'm on the road to Damascus. Verse 13. At midday, O king, he's talking to King Agrippa. I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me. And those who journeyed with me, and when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It doesn't say why are you persecuting the church, because it's personal. And we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying in the Hebrew, persecuting me. It is hard for you to kick against the goads, the thing that prods horse uh, uh, cattle. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. Rise and stand upon your feet. For I have appeared to you, I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those which I will appear to you, delivering you from the people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. Look at verse 18. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light the power of Satan, which is the darkness, to God, which is light, that they may receive what? Forgiveness of sins, salvation, redemption, and a place among those who are sanctified by how? Works of the law? No. He says sanctified by faith in me. Paul already knew in the moment of his salvation it wasn't by works, it was by faith alone. And Paul's got this bright light that knocked him and everybody off the horse. And it's interesting, in verse 16 of Galatians 1, when it says, was pleased to reveal his son to me, the literal Greek is in me, pointing to this inwardness of this experience. For Paul, the outward vision of meeting Jesus on the road and the inward illumination coincided with each other. Paul's on this road and he was changed by seeing and by revealing. His heart. It wasn't just a historical reality of the fact of seeing Jesus. It was that. It was also spiritual and personal and was driven to the heart of Paul. In Paul. He writes about it in 2 Corinthians 4.4. He says that the gospel is seeing, seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. He has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I think he wrote that because of his experience. He met the Lord Jesus on the road and realized he is the son of God. But he also seen the reflection, reflection of, of the divine glory and it pierced his soul. Do you remember Isaiah chapter 6? As a revelation of God sees and has his heart soul change. I'm, I'm wicked, I'm undone. By seeing, he's pierced. And then what? He's cleansed. Remember the angel comes and cleanses him and commissions him? Jeremiah, same thing. Chapter 1, verse 5. Listen to Jeremiah, the prophet. Before I formed you in your mother's body, I knew you. I'm glad they didn't board him either. And before you came out of the womb, I sanctified you. 
a prophet to the nations I ordained you. Here, just like Paul. God set apart before he was born, called by God's grace. He was pleased to reveal his son in him and to him. For what reason? Look what it says. That I might preach among the Gentiles. <laughs> reveal Christ to him, in him, through him, to others. And that's the difference between religion, philosophy, moral, religious following. This is a relationship. It's more than just an intellectual belief in Christ. That's not what Christianity is about. Christianity is having an interpersonal relationship with God. The God who calls to salvation by his sovereign grace also ordains the means by which the preaching is told. And people are being led to faith in a relationship an inner witness relationship by the Spirit through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. God revealed Christ to Paul in Paul in order for them, for, in order for God to send Paul to the Gentiles. And he, he didn't just go there. He, he, he spoke in Romans 9 how he would be, he'd rather be accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of his brothers. But his main goal, as we see, was to preached the gospel to the Gentiles, and now he's making this point against the Jewish Judaizers. So the apostles' call, the apostles' authority and mission was not, listen, was not some afterthought, plan B. Okay? In fact, God set him apart to spearhead the mission to the Gentiles before any of the apostles even met Jesus on that mountaintop. It was before he was born. He did not have to get his approval from others. Right? That's the point. After he's been set apart, called by God's grace, God was pleased to reveal Christ in him and through him. And look at what he says in verse 16, the proclamation of the gospel. He says, oh, when all that happened, I didn't go immediately to consult with anyone. I didn't go up to Jerusalem. I didn't go see the apostles that were before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, which is Peter, and remained with him only 15 days. I didn't see any other apostle except James, the Lord's brother. Now, he could be calling James an apostle, but the Greek doesn't really say. He could say, you know, I didn't see any of the apostles but Cephas, but also I saw James, the Lord's brother. Very popular, very man of influence, leadership in the Jerusalem church. He's saying, I didn't have any contacts with them after after this happened to me, after this light shone. Verse 20, just in case they didn't believe him. I'm not lying to you before God. I do not lie. Then I went to the regions of Syria, verse 21, and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. Verse 23, they only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they, what? Glorify God because of me. Paul, really? Why are you going through such great lengths of telling us what happened to you after your conversion? John Stott says there's three alibis here. (laughs) <laughs> three alibis I love it the first alibi he says he went immediately he immediately didn't go to Jerusalem he went to Arabia not consulting with anyone any other human being see what it says oh let me turn to Galatians with you <laughs> verse 17 but I went away into Arabia and returned to Damascus now we're not sure exactly where Arabia is because Arabia was also known as a region around Damascus King Artus uh, was the king there of and they would call it Arabia something he went down all the way into Arabia where the peninsula is but we're not really sure but the point is that he went away and he went away for how many years three 
How long were the other apostles with Peter? Three. Now Peter is, excuse me, Paul is now rescued, saved, redeemed, and he goes off to by himself, although I think he was preaching the gospel there as well, and he goes off to the region, and he spends the three years he never got that all the other apostles got. You got three years with Jesus, you know what? So did I. Alibi two. Not only did I go not straight to Jerusalem, but I went, alibi two, for later on and briefly for only 15 days. Seeing really anybody, I saw, I saw, I saw Peter, I saw James, the Lord's brother. And in short, you know, you know what, I, I didn't go to seminary with Peter. It wasn't Peter who came to me and said, Paul, we're going to anoint you, give me your credentials as an apostle, we'll finally put our hands on you and send you out. It's like, no, 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 that didn't happen that way. I just went there, in fact, if you read Acts, uh, I think it's Acts 9, a lot of the two weeks he spent preaching the gospel. I, I didn't go to seminary with Peter. I didn't get my information immediately in Jerusalem. I went later on. Alibi 3. He went to Syria, verse 21 through 24, which is, which is north, and you can read it in chapter 9, verse 30 of Acts. Uh, he's in danger of his life. Brothers from Caesarea came down and sent them off to Tarsus, which is in Caesarea. And the point that Paul is trying to make is, look, I, I didn't hang out in Jerusalem. I, I didn't get everything, uh, my authority, my calling, everything did not come from those who were apostles. I had my time with Jesus. I got a revelation from Jesus. I got my gospel message from Jesus. I got my authority, my calling, my commission from Jesus. It wasn't from anybody else. So all the Judaizers who are coming here and telling you, ah, he's a second-rate apostle, don't listen to them. Because if anyone preaches another gospel, let him be condemned. He says, the only thing, verse 22, is they didn't, you know, it was still not known. No one really knew me. It was a hearsay that the God who used to kill us is now preaching the faith that we are preaching. And they glorified God because of me. They didn't glory in Paul, and Paul was good with that. He didn't want the glory. The glory was in God because all that God has done. They recognized that Paul is a trophy of the grace of God. The mercy of God. They knew, they knew that only the direct intervention of God can change a sinner's heart. And when God intervenes, to him alone be the glory. In the words of a wonderful Bible teacher who went on to be with the Lord this week, Warren Worsby, he writes this, in the light of Paul's conduct, his conversion, and his context, how could anyone accuse him of borrowing or inventing either his message or his ministry? Certainly, he did receive his gospel by a revelation from Jesus Christ. Therefore, we must be careful what we do with this gospel, for it is not the intervention of man, but the very truth of God, end quote. What we learn from all this is that Paul's radical transformation of a man who was opposed, vehemently opposed to Jesus Christ and early Christians can only be explained. His conversion and his calling can only be explained by the work of God. He was not open to the idea while killing Christians. But how could he go from murdering the people to loving them? How can you go from destroying communities to declaring the good news so that more people come into the community? Unless something radically changed his heart, right? Paul's conversion points also to the grace of God. If you had met Paul before his conversion, you'd say, now that's one dude, that's one dude that's never come into faith. That dude hates us. It's the power of the gospel. It's the grace of the gospel. Anybody ever hear of a man? I hope you did. John Newton. 
He was a, he was a reprobate, a trade, uh, slave trader, a re- rebel. Yet the mercy of God intervened. Jesus Christ imposed his grace in his life and changed him. And in a letter, this is what Newton wrote. I, though a long ringleader in blasphemy and wickedness, was spared. And though banished into the wilds of Africa where I was the sport, yeah, the pity of slaves, I was, by a series of providences, little less than a miraculously recovered from the house of bondage. And at length appointed the priest of faith I had longed, I had labored to destroy. And when Newton died, this is what he wrote on his, on his gravestone. John Newton, clerk, once an infidel and a libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa was, by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. Newton, like Paul, is a powerful argument for the gospel. You know that if you're a Christian here this morning, you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, your life too is a powerful argument for the gospel if your life has been changed. If you claim to know Christ and you live in a life of hypocrisy, then it's not. But a transformed life lived to the glory of God is powerful proof of the gospel. It is, is what the Bible says, that we are to live our life in such a way, Matthew 5, that others will see it and give glory to who? To God. So let me end our time together. We go to communion this way. The Apostle Paul, who, who life overlapped with Jesus, who, who saw the risen Christ, who, who learned the gospel through a revelation, who his life completely turned around, who was a hater and murderer, and now is a believer, a proclamator, and a gospel guy. He's speaking to you through his word today. Either he's crazy, delusional, or he's telling the truth. He met the risen Christ. He saw the Lord Jesus. He understands the gospel, and the gospel is the truth of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, that your sins can be forgiven by grace alone, through faith alone, in the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going with that one. I'm going with that gospel. I'm going with the very word of the Lord given to the Apostle Paul who hated, murdered, rebelled, and persecuted Christians and now met the living Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus, and is proclaiming, come, come to Jesus. He died for our sins, he rose from the dead. That's what the table's about. The bread on this table is about his broken body. Where he died on a cross for your sins, as your substitute. His cup is the juice, is that his blood was shed for the remission of sin. That you and I owe a debt to God, just like when you commit a crime and you owe a debt to society. How much more for God who created you? All of us rebelled. All of us are sinners. All of us want to do what we want to do. And now God is calling you to turn from your sin, stop living for yourself, being your own Lord, your own Savior, and turn to him. Acknowledge your sin. Believe on the Lord Jesus who died for you, rose for you. And humble yourself. You can't reach God. God reached you. The band's going to play. If you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, the table's for you, the bread and the cup. Confess your sin, repent of your sin, and celebrate the work of forgiveness. If you're not a Christian and God is calling you by grace, in love, repent and believe. And if you do so, this table is for you. If you're not, we love you, we're glad you're here. Just sing with the band. I'd love to talk to you. Pastor Ricky will talk to you uh, after the service. We could talk a little bit more about the gospel. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we can come to know
the truth of the gospel. Father, thank you that it's not by works because none of us could make it. Thank you that it's not by moral righteousness because none of us are. All of us have sinned and fall short of your glory. So, Father, as we continue to sing and worship you, we're praying, Father, that your spirit would open our eyes and minds to see Jesus, Lord, that we'd recognize our sin, but also recognize even greater your grace for each one of us. So, Lord, bless us as we continue uh, to worship you as we take this cup and this bread together for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.